Welcome to episode 263 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samples. Welcome to 2020. Let's make this an exciting year of profound personal and professional growth. As events, hopefully, begin to shift back to in-person, we need to fortify ourselves against spammy networkers. You know, a guy or woman who after shaking our hand won't let go while they proceed to tell us all about whatever they are selling. Fortunately, virtual events have limited their ability to trap you in the corner of a room to painstakingly share every detail of their five-step process to achieve XYZ results. Unfortunately, if you love what you do, you may be guilty of being overexcited to share about your amazing process. When we fall in love with our process, our five steps to achieve XYZ, we become more focused on promoting and less focused on serving the people we want to help. The cure? Fall in love with the idea of showing up and providing value. If you listen more than talk, you'll learn exactly what support your likely prospects need from you. Until they believe you can help them achieve their desired outcome, they won't be very interested in your how. Then they'll want to learn more about your how enough to believe that they can implement that strategy with or without your support. And then even if your how is, let's say, unconventional, perhaps jumping on a pogo stick five times, your likely prospects will be intrigued and ask, where is the pogo stick? If we skip steps and jump right into our how, everybody wonders why we're walking around talking about the benefits of pogo sticks and inviting people to jump on them. Your challenge for this week, did you recognize that you've sometimes been the one running around proclaiming the benefits of pogo sticks? It's time to learn how to listen to your likely prospects so you are sure to create exactly the solution they want and know they need. Research calls are not overly complex, but in my experience, my clients have a lot of questions about how to find the right people to talk to, how to ask them to meet, and what to say. I'm hosting another three-part Big Results training to walk you through key strategies in small list, big results, launch a successful offer, no matter the size of your email list. Bring a notepad to take tons of notes, but also be camera ready so you can connect with fellow entrepreneurs during the breakout room small group discussions. We meet 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern on January 21st through 23rd. That's Friday through Sunday. The replay will be shared, but you are strongly encouraged to attend live if at all possible, since that's the only way to join the discussion and ask questions. You can register at robbysamuels.com forward slash Bing Results Training. This is a free training, so sign up now at robbysamuels.com forward slash Big Results Training. Before we dive into this week's interview, I want to give a special shout out to my book launch team. With their help, Smallest Big Results reached 4,202 in all U.S. Kindle number one in eight paid Amazon categories, and number one new release in five categories, and it also received 170 reviews. Are you hoping for similar results for your next book? I shared all the details of how I ran my book launch in a book launch strategies masterclass, which includes a 90-minute video and 25 pages of detailed notes. Sign up for access at robbysamuels.com forward slash book launch strategies. You can use promo code launch, that's L-A-U-N-C-H, to receive 33% off a $50 savings. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest's passion lies in helping clients build profitable businesses rooted in purpose and impact. He is a strategy entrepreneur, author, and speaker. He has built and scaled companies in Europe and Canada, and led client projects across the world. He believes a solid strategy is key to leaving a business legacy. His forthcoming book, The Strategy Legacy, presents a framework called 
the nine elements of organizational identity to help you build better businesses. I'm honored to have been invited to be interviewed by him for Legacy, the premier strategic business event that is organizing in February 2022. Please join me in welcoming Alex Brookman. Hey, Robbie. Glad to be on your show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Alex, thanks for joining us from your place in Vancouver, Canada. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think the first time I got in touch with the concept of leadership was um, when I realized that I didn't like my boss um, back in, oh my God, 1999. It was just a weird concept for me that someone would sit in his um, glass cube all day and just come out to yell at us. And um, we should still respect that person that that just didn't really land well with me. Um, but I was I was fairly young back then, um, and I didn't have an academic understanding of the concept of leadership. That just came later. So when I when I went back to university to study business administration, I was exposed to the concept in an academic framework, and I realized all of a sudden why I did not respect that person too much. <laughs> um, I didn't hold a grudge. Um, went went back into the corporate world and. Um, it was, I think, just like not even a year into my job that my back then boss asked me whether I would be willing to support his, new, his move um, to a new company where he was um, the CEO and whether I would like to become his strategy manager. And in that context, I first realized that I am basically leading even if I don't have a leadership position because as a project lead, a project manager, you are collaborating with all kinds of people across an organization and you need something from them. You want something from them, right? But if you are not leading from a position of influence, you don't get that. And that's, that's when I realized that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. You don't need a title. You don't need authority. You don't need a position. It's, it's influence. And that's when I realized, hey, that's kind of fun. <laughs> I can see I can see how that sort of shows up and how you show up in the world today. I love that you have this story about like the the bad version of a boss giving you a sense of like, well, I don't know what it's supposed to be, but it's not supposed to be that. And then you getting sort of more academically trained and then really kind of realizing you don't I love that you don't need to have an official title. I think a lot of people do think that a title counts and it really it's about the influence you have on people. I'm curious though, Alex, if we could kind of wind the clock back a bit. Like, what were you like as a kid? Like, take us to the playground, you know? Are you organizing people to do sports together or, you know, games in the playground? Are you kind of sitting back and watching? Like, what kind of kid were you? Oh, I was always the head through the wall, go first guy that wanted to have things his way and uh, would always want to, I I don't want to use the word dominate, but for the lack of a better word, um, be in charge, maybe put it that way, of how things had to be, um, how we would play, what we would play, who has which role. I was always kind of the the director, like in a in a theater in the theatrical sense, directing the game. You know, yeah. I guess if if you want to go that far back, I had this inclination of wanting to have things my way back then already. Yeah. I realize now that this is not necessarily what leadership is, but it plays a certain role, I guess. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, our understanding at an elementary level, like of what, what it looks like, but it also steps you out from the crowd. I imagine other people, particularly adults, teachers, family members started to see that in you. Did anyone nurture that in you and maybe guide you towards a better way of, of channeling that energy? No, unfortunately not. Um, this was a time, um, especially in the 80s, where the term ADHD was not even invented. Um, my mom said when I was a grown-up, she is kind of happy that um, ADHD and the medication that came with it w- wasn't invented back then because that's what probably would have happened. They would have put me on medication to calm me down and to calm my energy down and, and but they, they didn't know that term. They didn't know that medication back then. So they just tried to give me as much space and tasks <laughs> to get rid of my energy. Um, hyperactivity is, is probably something that I learned to channel myself um, when I was in my 
late 20s, early 30s, I would say. I realized that if I use it, if I use my energy in, in a different way, I can do something with it rather than just <laughs> drive everyone nuts around me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be so hard uh, n- not to have language for that as you're showing yeah. up in the world. And um, but they, but you know, they're giving you more to do to kind of burn burn through your energy. Um, were were you already thinking about people in your life as as people that you wanted to emulate? Was there anyone early on that you looked up to, and you know you were, maybe were trying to navigate the world as a kid, but you were also like, I that's a person I respect, or like I like the way this person shows up in the world. Could be like, again a teacher or a family member. I think there were two people particularly. There was, um, and that probably sounds super weird. Um, Axel W. Rose, the, the lead singer, singer of Guns N' Roses, was a person that I admired um, tremendously for his stage presence, for his energy. So in my youth, I, I looked up to that person, not necessarily because um, how he looked or what he said in public or whatever. It was really about his, his energy on stage. I loved how he could channel that inner beast into an incredible um, show. So I, I love that energy and how he showed up. And then on the other hand, um, my football teacher um, was a person that was probably the first leader that I met in my life that I looked up to because of his calmness and his way to include everyone, even those who typically didn't get the, the, the chance to be on the pitch in the first place. But he managed to create an environment where everyone felt um, part of a team. And, and that's what I realized only when I, when I was in my 30s, how incredibly well that person um, trained and managed this team and what he conveyed in terms of, of values without even telling us. Yeah, by doing it, by, by embodying it. Yes. Yeah. It's good that you have examples that aren't just the bad example of the guy in the glass office, <laughs> but also people who are leading teams. Because I, you know, when we're getting older and finding ourselves in these roles that have more leadership potential, how do we how do we draw from like something? But it sounds like so you you went um, did you did you go to university first and then go to work, or did you go to work first and then university? Yeah, I went to university when I was. 28 years old. So after um, a career in music journalism, I went to university, studied business administration, and then went to work for a large media corporation. Do you have a sense when you were in high school, like where you wanted to go in life? Was music really the passion that was driving you? Um, It was a passion that was driving me, but I never really pursued a career in music. It was never a thing. Um, I never really wanted to do that. Um, It felt so far away from how I grew up in a rural part of Northern Bavaria in Germany. It was just, I, I would say, a hideaway um, to think about becoming a rock star. It's something that you entertain as a thought as a kid, maybe, but um, nothing that would be within reach. I mean, not even close. I'd say it, it was a, a channel or a valve to get my energy out, but it was not uh, something that I wanted to pursue. It's interesting also to realize that you didn't kind of have the hyperactivity, I guess I'm going to use the word managed um, or channeled until your late 20s, early 30s, which is yeah. when you're going into the school again yeah. with this different focus. What shifted? Like, I think, you know, I can imagine people listening who have a similar you know, history. How did, how did you make that shift for you so that it became productive energy as opposed to distracting? And yeah. It started in my... I would say my early 20s, when I realized that I didn't need more than four hours of sleep a night um, to be energized again, to wake up and be at my best. And it grew over, over years into something that wasn't really healthy. If you only sleep four hours a night, it is not healthy. Even if you think you are at your best, you aren't. So I would... I would um, work in a club as a DJ on Fridays and Saturday nights, would close the club down at 4 a.m., would jump into my car, would drive into um, the radio station and would run the morning news at at 5.30. Um, And I would go back home um, after that and sleep a little bit and the clock would start again, right? So, and you do that on 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 a basis of, 
I'm young. I love what I do. It's totally fine. So I realized that by channeling my energy into productive work, it was kind of fun um, to be all over the place and juggling multiple balls. And then when I went to university, I realized, okay, I'm getting um, mentally challenged. For the first time of my life, I realized that this is not something that I can just do on the side. And it needed my full focus and full attention. And this is when I learned to really channel my energy into something, into focus on something, and into achieving a certain goal and not being distracted by all kinds of things around it. Almost like what you wanted would require you to channel more. Like you, you, you desired something that you knew you couldn't do if you were sort of scattershot, that it would require that like driven focus that you'd never really needed to have before because you were able to sort of bounce around. I, I mean, today I describe myself still as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. I get totally what you're saying. I'm not happy to like sit in one place. Um, but it, but it, as you get more of that focus, um, and that might be also like a case of maturity, right? And like, you know, us being the drivers of our own destiny in a way, and not just living up to other people's ex- expectations, I suppose. Um, you're still not an entrepreneur in this space, though. Like, what what point did you decide that was going to be the way you showed up in the world? I think the epiphany happened when, um, like, maybe a year out of my corporate job, I had gone into management consulting and then realized I'm way more about people than about processes. So um, I teamed up with a former um, executive coach of mine and um, started to build a, a company. And tasting that entrepreneurial, I don't know how to say that, it's, it's that entrepreneurial spark when I, when I realized it for the first time that there is something in me that can build something out of thin air that wasn't there before. That was just the most amazing feeling that I've, that I've ever had. It was in my head. And then a day later, you see it, you know, you create something, you build something, you hire people, um, you see it come to life, you acquire clients, you write concepts, People go like, yeah, that's exactly what we need. And, and then you channel your energy into creating something, to building something. And that was just the most amazing feeling I've ever had. When you first teamed up with your executive coach, which is awesome that you had an executive coach, was that provided by the company? Yes. That's, I mean, that's amazing already that you were given that opportunity. You didn't know what you were getting into. Like you didn't know you wanted to be an entrepreneur. You just, you just sort of seemed like a good idea to try it. It wasn't my first company. I had side hustles before, but throwing yourself into it, head over heels, taking a, what was that? A 40% pay cut at that point in time, leaving that well-paid management consulting job and the prospect of the promotion right in front of the door. And you're still like, yeah, that sounds great, but it's not for me. And then you leave and you do something out of conviction because you believe that this is the right thing. You don't know how to make it work, but you're convinced it's the right thing to do and you will give it your all to make it work. And that's I the best it, definition of entrepreneur I've ever heard. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just described, right? That, that conviction, that, that feeling, and also that, that you escape the golden handcuffs, right? Like, I was very, very lucky. To be very honest, I was super lucky. I mean, my university education cost a bunch of money and I had that debt and it would have been very easy for me to just stick with that job, to pay that debt off and to then um, buy a home and, you know, all those things. I was very happy, lucky at that point in time. I didn't have kids back then. I had um, a wife that was extremely supportive with a well-paid job herself. So I had that, that backup it wasn't, it wasn't that I had to take this job. There are so many people out there um, with golden handcuffs that never actually took the decision to take those golden handcuffs. The systems, uh, the political system, the um, educational system, in many countries, they are set up in a way that you have these golden handcuffs before you even know it because you need them 
to pay tremendous college debt off um, to provide for a family that you didn't plan on having, but hey, things happen. And all of a sudden you realize that you do have these handcuffs without opting in. You were yeah. just opted in. Um, yeah. So I was, I was very lucky at that in, in, in this context. Well, and that you were able to team up with someone who was pretty experienced that you were teaming up with the executive coach. So clearly they had an established practice and, and experience in entrepreneurship and yes. you'd had enough side hustle to know you'd, you'd enjoy the work generally, but it's really different. I mean, I had side hustles up until 2014 and that was when I let go of the, the paycheck. But I remember my, my initial plan was like a multi-year exit strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, finally I went down to like, you know, I gave them two months notice, but like, yeah. I just, um, I really felt, you know, the last moments of, oh my God, I, I, I really like stability. I like paycheck. I like insurance. Like, like I was like, wow, I had no idea how much I needed this until I finally had to let it go. Cause the, the thing I could do was, was becoming more than what I feared losing. And I think there's that moment. And, um, my mentor, Dory Clark had said to me at the time, uh, you'll know it's time to leave your job when it gets in the way of your business. Mm -hmm. And you know, sort of building things up on the side. Yeah. So what was the initial um, work you were doing when you set out um, to, to in this, this iteration of being an entrepreneur? Um, you mean like content wise, what we were doing? Yeah. What were you, what were you trying to solve for? So what we, what we realized at that point in time was that, we had a passion for strategy design, business strategy design, but on the other hand, also a tremendous knowledge around leadership development. Mm -hmm. And we were marrying those two things. We were marrying strategy design and leadership development in a way that we helped large organizations go through the strategy design process, largely without external help of consulting companies. So you don't bring in McKinsey and let them design your business strategy. They hand over a 300-page PowerPoint deck, and then you run with it. That's not how it works. I've seen that. The companies failed implementing that stuff because they didn't own it. They didn't fully understand it. So we didn't want that for our clients. So we helped them go through the process based on their own expert knowledge. And we just hold the space for them and create the space for the process to unfold. When they realize they need expert knowledge, you bring in that particular knowledge at this particular point in time. But at, any, at all points in time, they own the entire strategy design process and they own what they come up with. The result is accountability and ownership like crazy because it's their baby. It sounds like then, such common sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. But, you know, it's no one just, does it. Right. Unfortunately, not how the world works. And then you have this issue of, okay, we have this awesome strategy. We're all pumped up. But there are like 10,000 people in this organization that we need to lead through this. How do we do that? And that's when you need to take your entire leadership development academies, everything you have, every program that you have, you take it, you put it onto a stand and you say, how does that help us get that strategy implemented? How do these programs actually help us get our work done? And then you throw them out and redesign them in a way that they help you implement your business strategy faster and more successfully in a people-focused way. That's when you leverage your entire leadership organization and make them strategically savvy to the degree that they are able to help their teams understand their place, their contribution to that bigger picture, because that's what in the end gets strategy implemented. It's not leaders who implement strategy, it's the people, but you need them to understand first how they contribute, if they understand it or when they understand it, it unleashes incredible motivation and they get the job done. Wow. So how long have you been doing this, this work? Because it sounds amazing. And I'm curious whether you have um, sort of case studies of, of, okay, five years ago and now today, like being able to see the long tail of your effort. Yeah, we've been doing this type of work for eight years. Um, I'm still associated with my, with my former company. I still say my company. It was never my company. I mean, I was number employee number one in that case with a, with a founder, my ex um, executive coach. But you, you build it up as if you were an entrepreneur, right? Um, so technically speaking, it was never my company. But yeah, we've been doing that for eight years, and um, 
it's it's incredible to see how these companies go through these processes because and there was something that I really didn't enjoy as an as an um, management consultant. You you're kind of a helicopter. You come in, uh, create a lot of dust, and and then you fly out again. You never see the result in the long run of your work. Well, I shouldn't say never. Some do, but typically your assignments are too short. The relationships that we have with our clients, they are like three, four, five years relationships, some, some even longer. And you actually see the results of your work. And when those people call you back in for um, another round of your strategy, um, of their strategy development, or on helping them implement it further down in the organization, you know that something is going right. That's awesome. It's, I wanted to underscore that a little bit because it's just, it's kind of where everyone has wishful thinking about how they want to change organizations, but organizations change slowly yes. and require, it's like, it's like turning a really big ship. You know, you can, you can move within five degrees, but that's about it. And most people don't persevere through the effort. And when I worked in a bigger organization, never really as big as you're describing, but um, I know there were people who would come in for two years to work there, younger people, like associate, you know, entry level. And they were frustrated by the slow progress of X, Y, Z. And I had been there for 10 years and I'm like, I get it. But in the 10 year point of view, I can tell you all the things we've done, you know, and like you're showing up for 18 months and you're, you're, you're bailing out because you're like, oh, we're, we're still so slow. And, um, but, you know, their energy did ignite a fire and did kind of lead people to want to do more, but sticking around with people and like doing that work, you know, it's always, it's always people who implement these things. It's never leadership. I love how you, you sort of underscored that. Um, so when you're thinking about where you're going next with this, do you have a vision? Um, I know I want to talk a little bit about um, legacy event that you have coming up. I'm, I want to know how you came up with that idea and how that fits in with your sort of larger vision. I think I need to back up like two years before I moved to Canada um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in 2020, I had been entertaining thoughts around how can I build a business based on my knowledge that is scalable in a certain way? Because the work that I used to do um, over the past 15 years is not scalable. It is a people business, you show up, you get paid. It's a gig economy in the end. And what I realized when I was sitting, um, when I was sitting in, in Vancouver in our apartment, um, and, and because of COVID, you had a lot of time to think, I realized that the type of work that I did was actually not in line with my own values anymore in the sense that I traveled like crazy around the globe, leaving an incredible, um, incredibly bad environmental footprint. Um, because of all the flights. So I asked myself, okay, there are now two things in your head. You want to you build a strategy business that is scalable and that leaves the world as a better place, not contributing to the pollution of this planet. My son is 22 months now. He will be 80 years old in 2100. If I take the, even the best case scenarios for how climate change will affect us as a race, as human beings, this planet will be a wasteland um, in 2100 and large degrees, large areas of this planet will be inhabitable. So that was kind of like a sledgehammer in my face. I needed to change the way I live to large degrees in order to prevent me and my family from making this world a worse place. So what I, what I then came up with was the idea of taking all my knowledge, all my strategy knowledge, and repackaging it in a way that is accessible and understandable for every entrepreneur out there, even if you do not have a business background. Because most of us don't. Most entrepreneurs did not study business administration. They don't have an idea about the concept of leadership, about the concept of strategy, other than what they have read and heard in their lives. And let's be frank, most of us are super, super busy. We have families, we have a job, and there is just, there is no time to read a ton of books and educate ourselves around leadership and strategy. It's things that we just pick up here and on the way. And um, I wanted to create something that is accessible for people, that they understand what strategy is and how it helps them 
And even if you're just a solopreneur, strategy is essential. It's not a nice to have thing. Knowing where you want your business to be in two years, in three years, in five years, and how you get there, how you focus your attention on those priorities to get you to that point is, again, common sense, but 90% of people fail to do so. If I ask people, do you have a written down strategy, a vision that you described your company in the future? How should it look like? And how do you want to get there? They just blank. They don't have that. They're hustling day in and day out. They're just super busy using every opportunity that comes their way, throw it against the wall, see whether it sticks or not, whether it works for them or not. And they're wasting so much time and, and energy and money with that. So that's when I realized you have something to offer to entrepreneurs that want to become successful, but somehow struggle to do so and don't know why. And have you been doing this in small groups, one-on-one? Like, is this what you're, you're in the last couple of years, have you been iterating that in different ways? Well, um, it's basically what I've been doing with organization, organizations, large and small over the past 10 years, um, but this time in a different format. So, um, rather than flying around the world, helping people to create their strategy and thereby teaching them the process, um, I'm now creating um, an online course that helps them step by step. In, so it's, it's not just a course that you buy, you, you, you go through the course and at the end you're like, yay, I know how that stuff works. It's actually a process where you not only get taught, you actually produce your strategy and your entire organizational identity on the way through the program. So it's work. It's not just sitting there and consuming, it's work. And it includes me as a coach working with you to get you over those barriers that you will hit in there in, in, inevitably. Yeah, I love it. It's not entrepreneur TV, as my friends call it, when you exactly. sit back and just consume content, <laughs> no. entrepreneur TV. Um, this sounds amazing. And, you know, because of the, the content of my most recent book, I'm going to ask you questions that I think I already know the answer to based on who you are in the world. But how have you been talking to people about the course that you were developing? Is this something you just created because you know people need it? Or have you actually had some, you know, research calls or discovery calls with people to better understand how they think about these problems? Before I actually started creating the course, I actually wrote a book. Um, and you said it in the introduction. Um, the book entails the core process and the core framework that I'm now teaching in the course. So I had the content. I struggled to translate it into a course because I have this academic background. I talk to corporate leaders and this is a certain language that you use day in and day out that is just so ingrained in my identity that I can't get rid of it anymore. So when I started to realize I wanted to create this course, I needed to bring people on board that actually translated my brainy stuff into language that people could understand that do not have that background. That was my first challenge. So I needed help with that. It was hard to accept that because it comes with a price tag, you know, but it's something you need to accept at one point in time that you are not good at everything. You need to focus on the stuff you're good at and bring on people that are good on, on, on things that you aren't. So that was the first the, the first step. Once I had that language and once I could, could actually talk to potential clients in that context, I started to reach out to people. And before I actually could do that, I needed to define my ideal client persona. So who are the people I want to talk to? I can't talk to and offer a course for the millions of entrepreneurs on this planet. The term entrepreneur is so wide, it entails the side hustler up to Elon Musk. These are all entrepreneurs, but there's a, a huge difference in what those people need. So I honed in on my niche. I honed in on understanding whom do I want to serve? Who is best suited to understand what I teach, to take that knowledge and run with it and create something amazing with it on their own? And then I realized, okay, there is, there is a niche and it's still large enough to, for me to serve and, and and uh, build a business on. And then I started to reach out to those people and, and listening to them and asking them questions around what they feel they need and what they feel strategy means and what they feel they need to see in, a, in, a, in such a course so that it would be helpful for them. It was probably um, 
extremely helpful to talk to these people. Let me put it that way. If I, if I hadn't done that, I would probably have missed the, the mark to a certain degree to producing something of real value to them. Yeah, I want to I want to sort of break down a little bit of what you just said because I I feel impressed that you did all these steps. <laughs> um, again, I'm not surprised given your strategic background that you would not just go head first like you used to as a kid into the wall. <laughs> but um, so many of us have an idea of how we can serve. We want to be value. We want to add value in the world, and we're experts, and we know people need our help, but the people don't know. They need our help. So I yeah. like that you you basically hired a copy editor, a copywriter to help you, I should say, to come up with the language, break break down your more businessy-like language, your more academic language into something. Uh, in my book, I talk about the difference between fatigued and exhausted, right? Like one's a little more academic, clinical, and one is how people yes, actually speak. Exactly that. Um, and then, then you had to figure out na- more narrowly niche down your ideal persona so you could know who to reach out to. Did you also know that you had these people in your network when you were having that, like doing that exercise? No, you, I had no you, idea. You I just know. posted it on social and said, guys, I want to talk to you out there. I, I hope you're out there. You need to be this, this, and that. If you are, and if you want to talk, hey, send me a PM. That, that was it. And people yeah. reached out. So what you haven't done yet is have you gone systematically perhaps through your contacts to see who you could be inviting into your pilot? Well, yes and no. Let me put it that way. There are so many people um, on my email list that I have no idea where they come from. I don't know them. And right now, I, I hope that they find value in what I provide. Otherwise, I think they wouldn't be on my email list anymore um, because I talk about the same topics in my newsletters, on my social, it's just the topics I'm super passionate about. And if they find value in it, I hope they are also my ideal client. But on the other hand, I know who, for example, on LinkedIn, I, I know who's in my network. I know these people. Most of them I do know. And um, it's, it's important for me to understand where they are in the process because I started to build my network long before I became a full-time um, strategy entrepreneur. So there are people on my network from the days when I was in my mid-20s that I've met back then that have a completely different career than I have and that, that couldn't be further away from being my ideal client. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. And I, but I just think you know, if that first pilot, um, you know, it, depending on the size of your list, you may or may not have all the right people um, and, and also how nurtured and engaged the list is. Yes. But you definitely could probably find a dozen people to talk to from LinkedIn who may not be on your list because they don't have ever realized you had that. Like, it's so exactly. funny how the parallel tracks of our lives, people you met in a long time ago, you end up really being positioned well to serve each other and support each other. Um, I, I wish you a lot of luck in what you're creating. And I, I want to actually kind of just dive in as we're wrapping up here, just thinking about how do you nurture that network that you were just talking about? We've got, so that inner circle of people that, you know, you're, gonna, you're not going to lose touch with. But then how do you nurture sort of the second and third layers of a network, people that you, you know, meet once a year at a conference or you work with five years ago, but you don't really have a reason to today. And I want to preface this by saying these are people that you liked. Yeah. <laughs> you, would like, you would like to spend more time with them and they mutually feel that way. Like, are there any habits or philosophies or practices that you use to make sure you're, you're sort of staying um, in touch or connecting or top of mind with folks? What I typically do when I'm on vacation, and I try to be um, in summer and in winter for um, a couple of weeks to, to just spend quality time with my family, but my brain never shuts off. I guess that's, that's normal for an entrepreneur. So what I try to do during those times, those people that come to mind, I just reach out to. I just send them emails um, or give them a call or send them a text um, just to let them know that I've been thinking about them. Um, I mean, just... Just um, two days ago, I, I walked through a mall and I, I saw um, a display of a Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and it reminded me of a, of, a, of a very old friend of mine. And um, I just sent her the picture. I just texted her the picture without saying anything. And um, she immediately got it because it's, it's those moments where you think of someone, you, you can either decide to act and, and reach out to that person 
or you can just be, oh yeah, we had a great time together. Yeah, but if you reach out, you never know what comes out of a conversation. You never know how you find that person, especially as you said, Robbie, when this connection might have been on a hiatus for a couple of years. Um, you never know where this person is, how you meet that person, in which state of mind you meet that person, in which point in their lives. So it's just about taking that impulse when it comes, that thought, and actually reach out. And in my experience, people are surprised and they answer. It, it rarely happens that those people don't get back to you. Sometimes it takes them a while, but they do. They do come around. I think of this as surprise and delight, which is, of course, a, a term I'm, I'm borrowing from Disney. But it's, it's this idea that you, you think of, you have that imp impulse and you act on it. I think so often people talk themselves out of doing what you just described. Yeah. And I think uh, I've heard this described on this show by a lot of people. And I think that's a common um, why, why it works. Like, why do people having a good reaction uh, and a good way of nurturing their connections is because when they think of someone, they act on it. So I just had this experience this week. A couple of people came to mind that I used to see in person in Boston. I'm no longer living in that city. And um, one of them I know is not even on Facebook. So my life has changed so much in the last year. Like if we don't see each other or yeah. stay in touch, like we really will drift. And um, I use something called postable.com as a way to gather people's mailing addresses and then easily send them a little note on a, on a stationary, like on a card, like a greeting card. And, you know, I know I could just have a stack of greeting cards on my desk and stamps would be the <laughs> old school way of doing it. But for whatever reason, it never happened. So this is fun because I thought of a few people and I didn't have addresses for one of them. And so I showed, shot them an email, but use that email as a reason to then also get their address for the future. And I'm also thinking about this in relation to holidays. So I like to do New Year's cards because everyone celebrates New Year's. And so, you know, this is a good time of year to, for me to be thinking about, you know, do I have a connection? Do I have the contact info? And just, I mean, I sort of gathering it the last time I, I intentionally gathered addresses was like a wedding. Like that's eight mm. years ago for me yeah. or nine years ago. So it's like, you got to be intentional to like keep up that effort. Um, but I love the idea of like, if you have the impulse, take the action. Um, people are so delighted. They're, they're like, wow, where did this come from to be thought of that way? And I also should say that be known for something because there are people in our lives that are probably, you know, there's a theme you know, like a person who collects a teddy bear, wherever you go, you're going to think of them whenever you see a teddy bear, True. right? Like be known for something <laughs> and that makes it a lot easier uh, to, to, to have someone um, spark, a, spark an idea. I'm delighted to talk to you about all of this. And I'm, I'm so amazed that you and I know each other because I believe that, you know, you found me through LinkedIn. I want to sort of mention this because, you know, LinkedIn, I, I'm fairly open who I connect with because I've spoken in front of large groups. And so I don't assume that I have met each person ahead of time. They may have seen me or found my work online or found my book or something, my podcast. So I'm generally open to saying yes, but I'm amazed by how many times I then am pitched some spammy thing as soon as I say yeah. hello. And I write a long opening message to people. So they, they could reply and mention anything in that opening message and it would be a real conversation. And they could tell me what they want to tell me, but so many ignore that. But <laughs> your folks found me, I don't know how, and you got through my BS detector. And then I, I ended up on your site. And I remember reading your description of what, your, what value you were trying to create in this event legacy. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so who I am. It's about being transparent and giving and have a big impact. And I was like, ah, you know, these are, these are words I would use. So precisely I am in this case, the person you're trying to attract and I see <laughs> myself in your copy. Well done. And I was like, oh, I totally want to get to know what they're doing. And then you and I had a great initial conversation. Um, I asked the end of the call, if you um, were looking to diversify your list at all of speakers, and then I had a connection to a lot of amazing people of color and amazing women who may not have, you may not have heard of. And so you, you said that was something you were looking to do more of. I was able to reach out to my network, invite more people into your legacy event. So 
give us a sense or two about the legacy event because that is coming up. This will be airing in January. That'll be coming up next month. So tell us a little bit about what could people expect? Who is it for? And what is the, what is the outcome that they could achieve by attending? Legacy is, um, I call it the premier strategic business event. So we are not talking about tactics. We're really talking about how can you as an entrepreneur or a business owner, or even as an entrepreneur in an organization, a leader in an organization, how can you create an environment, a business that is more than just providing for your family? So how can you go beyond money? How can you build something that is profitable and at the same time, has an impact on making this world a better place, socially speaking, environmentally speaking. But then also, and that's day three. So we have three days, day one on impact, day two on profits. And day three is all about you as a person. You are the center of your organization. If you are a solopreneur, there's no one else. If you are an entrepreneur, um, you have a small company maybe um, with some people. Maybe you run a bigger organization with many people but they depend on you. They need you. So that means you need to take care of yourself. So we, we talk about um, a healthy lifestyle, how to prevent burnout. We even touch topics like suicide prevention. Um, we, we talk about topics that truly matter to live a fulfilled life and create a living legacy, not a legacy in the sense that you hand down a nice house and a big bank account to the next generation, but that you create something of value that stays there that, 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 that you create while you're alive and stays there when you're gone. And um, it's, it's an amazing roster of people that will speak on legacy. They include Harvard Business School professors. They include CEOs of um, environmental protection agencies, young ecopreneurs, um, people that are passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and people that help you build a business just like you, Robbie, your session is, is certainly one of the ones that people should definitely dig into because the, the, the value that you dropped in this, in this session and we recorded it just, um, I think, yesterday. So when this session airs, it, it would have been um, some time ago. There is so much knowledge for people to suck out of these sessions and, and they are not long-winded. We're talking 25 to 30-minute sessions. So bite chunk size that you can fit into your day. Yeah, no, it's great. You've got about 40 speakers lined up. What's the way people can find out more about that? I think the best opportunity is just to go to my website, alexthestrategist.com, right there on the landing page. You see the countdown for the event. It's important to know that this is a free event. It's, it doesn't cost you a penny to, to, to dial in and to enjoy the sessions. Um, and if you want to upgrade to a VIP package, for example, to have longer access and to get some additional bonus materials that I've prepared for you, every penny that we make goes to childhood cancer research and to environmental protection causes. So this is a, a not-for-profit event that helps you build a, a better life and business. And at the same time, you're doing, you're doing something good. Yeah, no, I, I quizzed you a lot about how you were structuring this because um, I, I basically turned down 99% of the summit invites I've had for the last seven months um, as I was focusing on my own book and realizing that I've, I was feeling a little burnt out about it because mostly they're not well well run, they're not thoughtful, they're not strategic, um, <laughs> the production value isn't great, um, it's, it's a lot of effort for um, just, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's getting me what I wanted, but this one, it seemed really exciting to be part of the collaboration and your lineup of speakers is pretty impressive. So, um, definitely everyone check that out. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. So my final question for you, Alex, uh, we're a year from now, we're, we're still in touch the whole year. I don't doubt that, but let's say it's a year from now. And I say, you know, it was a year ago that I entered you. Um, tell me about your year. Like, what should we be celebrating? I want to know what are we going to be toasting? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I think 2022 will be the first year in building my business where I hopefully make some money back. So right now I've been investing a lot. Um, I, I give building my new business like really everything, time, money, everything I have, savings. Um, it's, it's something I truly believe in and something I know that will work. And I really hope that I can just add value to the world out there, to the, to the entrepreneurs out there that they see the value, that that would be what I want to celebrate. And then hopefully in that context, um, 
also being able to provide for my family um, through that new business that I'm building. That would be amazing. Wow. Cannot wait to celebrate that with you. How can people find you and follow your work? I'm obviously on, on all social channels, like the big ones that, that um, from LinkedIn to Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm not very active on, on all of these. I'm more active on some of these. So if you want to reach out, ideally on, on Instagram or on LinkedIn, that's where I um, am most active. And again, just go through my website, alexthestrategist.com, where you find the social links and where you find tons of free resources um, from um, an intentional strategy toolkit that helps you get your head around your own strategy, start working with it um, at no charge. And th there's tons of articles and interviews with me on the website that you can dive into and just educate yourself around the topic of strategy a little bit more. Even if you think that you might not need it, I promise you, you will be amazed <laughs> what becomes possible if you dig into the topic. I love it. And I'm so on the same page as you about it. I'm going to have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Alex, thank you so much for this conversation. Robbie, thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 263. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. They'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask them probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey, how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.